Yo, it's unreal to think we're at 100 episodes. But this wasn't created overnight. It was created over nights. Days, weekends, before, during, after work hours. Yeah, there were a lot of after work hours. You know, this was created with the desire to change lives. Whether those lives were in a conference room or a home office, on the road or on stages in different cities, this was created to be more than a podcast, right? It's a a feeling, a safe space, an archive, a movement, a beacon of hope. It's an invitation calling creators around the world to claim a seat at any table of their choosing. From one shared vision to 100 episodes, we, all of us, created this one story at a time. So thank you for listening and tuning in to 100 episodes of the Claim of Stories podcast, hosted by yours truly, Bima Williams. I mean, I've pretty much been a token all my life. I think a lot of us Black people are in these spaces. Like, from my first job, you know, at MTV, I was there because I was a token, you know? And so I've just kind of owned it. It used to make me really sad because I started in it so young. And I was like, damn, I'm just a token. And then I was like, you know what? That, yes, I'm a token, and I'm going to make the best of it and use that tokenship the best way I know how and really have something to say instead of just, like, you know, being bitter or whatever about it. Um, And it's helped me want to create my own tables Mm -hmm. because so we don't need tokens. Mm I'm Bima, and on today's show, we talk to whom GQ Magazine has crowned streetwear's first family. Chris Gibbs, owner of Union LA, and his partner Beth Burkett Gibbs, owner of Bethy's Beauty Supply, film director, and creative collaborator with Chris, amongst many other forms of storytelling. Yes, this is streetwear's first family, and there is so much more. The two met on the G train in NYC. While Chris rose to great heights at Union NYC, Beth was gravitating towards filmmaking. This dynamic would make a transformative change leaving all of their community and comforts of NYC and move to L.A., where, as they say, learned all about adulting. And like everything else they touch, they would get good at it, but not without some challenges. As we discuss the evolution of streetwear, what it's like seeing the world through the eyes of their two boys, the pros and cons of L.A. and NYC, the algorithms of social media, the value of community, growth at every level for this couple comes with grace— and they're navigating it as only a first family would. I just want to chat with y'all about your journey a little bit, about some of your process, creativity, the world, society, streetwear, fashion, us (laughs) as a culture. I guess where I want to start is kind of around Black imagination, right? Angela Davis said that Black style tells the truth about Black imagination. Beth, I'm curious, 
when you think about imagination and how do you keep it healthy, I guess, in the midst of the world, what's happening, even maybe responsibilities, like, what do you think? Woo, well, that has been challenging <laughs> during this time. Um, yeah, I've just been, you know, trying to protect my energy um, and my space, mm. and not in like a selfish way, but just, but I guess in a selfish way, like mm. knowing like I, I can't watch the news <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes you need to just do nothing, mm. you know? Mm. And I feel like that's been really hard for me because I'm finally at the place where I can, like I can, you know, I have projects going where I can not be in this like, you know, um, hustle, you know, taking on things that I know I don't want to take on, but yeah. I just feel like I have to stay busy. Mm -hmm. And just knowing that like that is not okay. Mm -hmm. And that's like self-hate. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and just being okay with, yeah, just kind of being still, just being observant. Mm. Um, that's how I get my creativity is just like observing mm. things, people. But it's been also a challenge because I'm used to observing people and being in LA where, you know, the only way you're really around people is if you're like out. Out you and know? doing something, quote yeah. unquote. Yeah, and yeah. so getting used to that. Mm. It's also being cool with, you know, with changing and how that creativity like works, where it comes from. Yeah, I love what you said about just like sometimes doing nothing. Cause so it feels like every time you, talk to someone or see something, it's like, I gotta be doing a million and one things to feel like I can be a creative. And it's like, well, how do you replenish if you're always doing something? Like you kind of have to feel like you're wearing yourself out at some point. Yeah, well, know? I felt like I was, I got burnt out from that, mm. from always feeling like I had to keep up. And it, it was just kind of like, I was not inspired by anything. I didn't like anything I was producing. Wow. I just was like, what am I doing? I'm just on this hamster mm. wheel and it's not dope. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't look good. Mm. And I need to just fall back and yeah. be comfortable enough to do that. Mm. I love that. Chris, how about you? I think we're different the way we kind of get inspired and the way we kind of unearth our imagination. Where we're similar is looking for it, you know, outside yeah. and trying to find it. And yeah, we were in New York just last week and it was definitely, you know, even though I'll admit, I'm, I like it here. So <laughs> Beth wants to move back. But uh, I did see like just walking in, in the streets. You see so many interesting people, things, styles, what have you. So it definitely like was very inspiring and jogged a bunch of ideas. So mm -hmm. it was definitely cool to be there and see that. And I'm a little spoiled in that for work, I do get to travel quite a bit. So whether it's in Paris or Japan, Japan for me is like, hmm. Tokyo was my spot. <laughs> like that's where I, there's some weird connection I have mm. where I get find a lot of inspiration when I go mm. to Japan and they do a really good job as a society and a culture of like giving you both like New York is like ah all the time right Tokyo is ah all the time but you can go just outside of Tokyo mm. and you know be Breathe. in this really peaceful place so mm. that balance is nice and then 
think we're in a day and age where there's no shortage of media. You know, we're getting overwhelmed <laughs> with it. And so trying to do a decent job of like curating my feed to the things that are gonna inspire me. And then I think Beth kind of put it well too, like uh, she would call it like, you know, protecting her energy, which is mm. absolutely relevant for me. I'm an, I'm an only child, so I'm very Same. independent. And yeah. so finding my time, finding my space alone mm. and trying to bring that imagination out from within. Mm. How does social media play into y'all's imagination? Does it help? Does it hurt? How does it deal with like the whole kind of healthy aspect of the imagination? Well, I'm not really on social media. Uh, I have access to it when I need to for work. Like if we're casting, someone's gonna send me, I need to, but for the most part, I'm not on it. And I think a lot of that has to do with, it was a while ago giving me anxiety. Mm. I found it really overwhelming. Like there's just too much information. Mm. Uh, and so I find my weird places and ways where I can get it yeah. the way I like it, but I don't engage personally on there. I'm barely involved, almost to the company's detriment, on our company social media because it's not a place I feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm not really not, good yeah. with, I'm not good on social media. Do y'all feel like a pressure in that? Like, um, I, and maybe I'm saying, cause personally I'm like, you know, as a business owner, it's like, how do I do the dance of like taking care of me, but then also like staying present for, I guess, the business and the community. But, you know, it's like, it's a weird one. No, it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I do not have the luxury that Mr. Gibbs has. <laughs> um, I am on social media and not like I'm on it more, you know, I'm on, yeah, Instagram, TikTok. Um, I do want to know what's going on. I mm. do want to know what people are doing. I actually was enjoying TikTok and, mm -hmm. and trying to get it to a place where it's not unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So I'll do it like a couple hours the same way I like, you know, do a couple hours of like, you know, the news, newspapers, yeah. articles, like, and then I'll do a little TikTok here and there. And I feel like, yeah, that's kind of the world we're in. It's hard to be like, oh, you know, I can't be a part of this. This is the new world that we're in. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely learning how to just like regulate it, yeah. you know, where it's not like, and even knowing how to think for yourself. Mm. Um, a lot of the TikTok that I engage is like educational, like news. Mm -hmm. Like I like to, you know, see what the what's going on in Senegal yeah. or in Paris yeah. or, you know, I'll follow TikTokers from there. And so that's how I feel like I get my information. But then, you know, you also will get people who are telling you real, and you're like, hmm, is that true? <laughs> like, wait a minute. How <laughs> <laughs> you in this <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so there's a balance. But so, I'm finding that I don't think you need it as much. Hmm. Like, I mean, obviously, to, when you're first starting your brand, I, you might need it. But hmm. I, I think it's changing where we're going back to quality and to word of mouth hmm. and, like, people who know, know. Yep. And so you might not be, like, you know, everyone might not know about you, but the people that know, know, and that's yeah. all that matters. That's all that matters. Yeah, yeah I, I think there's, we're going to have to have a reckoning or a balance of, and everything, it happens that way. We have pendulums that, that swing, but I do think we got to, 
<laughs> there's got to be some sort of adjustment. And maybe I'm just projecting because I'm like, personally, I'm just like, there's no way this is healthy. Yeah. <laughs> On the subject of streetwear. So streetwear, we know this term's been around. It's been around before there was even a term. And also, I'd also be clear in saying that it's not like this singular definition, right? It's a multiple. Yeah. <laughs> Beth, for you, what's been your journey into the space and as it continues to evolve, like, how yeah. do you feel about it? You know, I, yeah, I feel like I'm an OG in the space for sure. I'm proud of that. I don't think there's like a lot of black women my age willing to take that title, mm -hmm. but I'll take it. <laughs> you earned it. You earned it. You earned it. <laughs> I, well, not only did I earn it, but I've always just wanted to be in spaces where I didn't see myself. Mm. And so that's where I always strive. As I'm learning, being a woman in this space, in, especially in the sneaker world, I'm learning that a lot of us, a lot of women, we have been fed who we should be, what we mm. should look like, how we should think. And so it's very hard to be a woman and tell another woman who they should be, who <laughs> they should look like, unless I fit that mold. Like mm. a lot of it has been through this very male lens. And so that's why I want to be in it to, mm. you know, I don't know if I can change it all the way, but just make a little tiny mm. dent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And now that we, you know, there are, you know, some opportunities, I'm like, I'll take that opportunity to be the one woman in the space that's like, you know, you all may not love me, you all may not get me, but I'm here and I'm going to be making moves and... Got to deal with it. You got to deal with it. <laughs> and then maybe not you, but your kids or your kids' kids will know. Will know. And so... Is there yeah. any discomfort that comes with that? Oh, so much. Yeah. I tried to stop doing interviews. Mm -hmm. I try, I feel, I mean, I've pretty much been a token all my life. I think a lot of us black people are in these spaces. Like from my first job, you know, at MTV, I was there because I was a token, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so I've just kind of owned it. It used to make me really sad because I started in it so young. And I was like, damn, I'm just a token. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, you know what? that. Yes, mm. I'm a token and mm. I'm going to make the best of it and use that tokenship the best way I know how and really have something to say instead of just like, you know, being bitter or whatever about it. Um, and it's helped me want to create my own tables mm -hmm. because so we don't need tokens. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this sense that like, just because you're a token that you're not talented and you're not smart and you're just literally there because of your skin color right. and I mean there have been so many tokens that have like <laughs> said it for all of us yeah. you know and I'm not saying that like that's the only way but right now it's still the only way like yeah, yeah. there's you know? not many different lanes yeah there's yeah. not a lot of lanes and in order to create a new one you need to get in somewhere yeah you know? And I mean, it's a part of just taking it into your own hands. I mean, that's, I love that about both of you is that you've taken a lot of this into your own hands, not waiting for these handouts or opportunities that, you know, likely feel, sometimes can feel scarce, but we know there's abundance. But I think the abundance comes from more so what you decide to do versus waiting on someone else to yeah. do it. For me, it's hard because I am an artist mm -hmm. and you know, I think a lot of 
people, you know, even Black people, I think there's this idea that, like, you know, just because you're an artist, you're going to, like, wait and get that artist opportunity. <laughs> like, you're just going to be able to, like, paint in your room and all of a sudden someone's going to discover you. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I know that even though, like, no matter how many people you know mm-hmm. and people know you, you know, until you're at the level where you can create your own art and have ownership over it, what are we talking about? What are we doing? Yeah, what are we doing? Yeah. No, no, facts, facts. There's a saying, give the streets what they want. (laughs) And before social, you know, streets were alive and well, doing their own thing. Chris, I'd be curious to know, do you believe kind of within this context of culture and fashion, like do the quote unquote streets from a style perspective still exist or is that all now on social media? (sighs) That's a good question. I think the answer to that goes in cycles. Mm. There's waves. There was when I first started in this industry, we, everything we offered was like people came in and they wanted what we were offering. They weren't, they didn't come in looking for a specific brand. Mm. They came in looking for guidance sometimes, but sometimes they just like wanted something interesting. They needed, they needed to connect. And specifically I'm thinking of like our t-shirt wall, Mm. which would have been my first kind of entry into this game. And so there was a bunch of really dope brands, a bunch of really dope designers. Nobody knew who they were. (laughs) They weren't, you know, this was the option outside of Broadway, Canal Street, Gene Co., whatever, this yellow rap, this was like a bunch of, you know, and so heads would just come in and organically Hmm. pick a t-shirt or two, you know, based on a color, based on some kind of familiarity of the graphic or whatever. They weren't about the brand, you know? And then, in fact, at that time, what we were selling would have been the exact opposite of what was commercially hmm. successful pop culture. Yeah. You know, you were buying a brand, you were buying polo, hmm. right? And so now for the first time, at least to me, you were just buying this image that hmm. was like, or a statement or a quote, hmm. you know? Um, this was a time, you know, when I started in this industry, like this was when counterculture was thriving, hmm. right? And so nowadays, I know there's a counterculture, mm-hmm. but like it's almost like there are almost too many countercultures, and you like mm-hmm. th- it was a lot simpler then, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah. And so, as things have evolved, at some point it got to the place where, oh, this designer's now done enough to become like a brand, and now you're <laughs> buying the brand yeah. over the design because you're. A alike that you see on the street. Oh, you got a box logo? He knows what's up. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so today, I think we're on the precipice of a change. Mm. I think although I could boo-hoo that the brand moment, I do think it happened organically. I kind of understand the transition. Mm-hmm. And so up until very recently, we've been in this moment where the brand is king. The design mm. doesn't matter. Mm. And in fact, more than the design doesn't matter, the product doesn't matter. Mm. You're buying the narrative. <laughs> You're buying the lifestyle. Mm. You're buying the story of the brand, mm. right? It doesn't even matter about the product anymore. You know what I mean? And so what I think I'm seeing through our kids 
is and through kind of Gen Z, and it's I'm kind of like uh, I've got this conflicting opinion about it because <laughs> as a businessman, I want to be able to predict what they want, and I can't. <laughs> yeah. I'll admit I cannot. Yeah. And up until now, I've been able to. Mm -hmm. But then as a creative, I really appreciate that they're just doing their own thing, mm -hmm. and they're not accepting the Gen X mm. platform, the mm. Gen X, this is how you dress, this is the dress code. Mm -hmm. I think Gen X kind of made it. I'm a proud Gen Xer, I guess. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, Bronx created it, Brooklyn keeps on taking it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so like, uh, I think millennials kind of adopted it, mm. but I think Gen Z is kind of like, nah. We're doing some other thing, and our our oldest son in particular yeah. is definitely on his own thing. This guy's on. And way. I appreciate it. <laughs> and so I think I hope that's answering your question. Yeah. But I, I guess I feel like uh, it'll go in a wave. They'll do their own thing, and then one of a handful of the 21st century Gen Z designers will become, oh, that's the designer. I'm going to buy that brand now. Mm. I'm not, you know, and they'll become the thing for the next generation. It's just a cycle. And wherever we're at in the cycle, I'll admit, I'm always wanting it to evolve. I'm never happy. And when it evolves, I'm not happy. When it evolves, you, know, you know, even though that's what I was asking for like <laughs> a year ago. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess that's never satisfied. I don't know. <laughs> what I don't is know. it about, I guess, in particular, when you think about now, is it because it's so... It feels like there's so many different pockets of these different things happening and it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint maybe what a narrative might be or like. Yeah, I mean, again, it's this conflict, like from a creative point of view, it's wide open right now. Mm. It really is. There are so, uh, too many, I can't keep up with all the brands. Mm. I can't keep up with all the designers, all the styles, all the subgenres. it's wide open. And I guess unlike when I was coming up, there was a counterculture, but it was centered in these big subculture mm. movements. Mm. It was hip hop yeah. before it became pop, mm -hmm. you know? And so you were able to like kind of have a common mm. appreciation with this thing this that's thing that was deep. not quite developed, yeah. but everybody knew where it was kind of going. Mm -hmm. Whereas today, I don't know what the subculture, there's so many mm -hmm. subcultures. It's like, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, where is there any subculture? Yeah, or there, well, mm. I'm sure there's, mm. well, I yeah. There, I don't know <laughs> yeah. if there is. I don't, I think we're. There's subcultures, there's not a lot of counterculture, maybe. Mm. But maybe I, I know those are a little different, I guess. I think with social media and everybody feeling the need to be seen, mm -hmm. it, you lose that counterculture. You're right. Because mm -hmm. if everybody, whereas when we were coming up, we didn't want to be seen. Like the, you were yeah. at You kind of want to be left alone in your pocket. Yeah, like you were at Nobody but, knew what you did. Nobody yeah. knew the people that yeah. you knew. Like yeah. you would go to a cool party and like no one took photos. Like it was weird. Yeah, it wasn't black. a thing. Yeah, and it was like, and if you were like, too excited to be there, then you shouldn't be there. You know, yeah. whereas now everyone's like, yeah, you know, I was just with this person and that person. Yeah. And, and you know, and even like down to like, you, just being like a style person, mm -hmm. right? Like I remember, like people will, you know, come up to me and be like, oh, that's like a cute outfit. And I'll go up to people and be like, oh, that's cute. You look mm -hmm. cute. And you can almost tell, like the appreciation isn't mm -hmm. there. They're like, mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
oh, you must be like an influencer on, on that, right? And and it, it so it just loses its like yeah. excitement because, mm. I, you know, I didn't necessarily put on this outfit for anyone but myself. For myself. And if you appreciate it, cool. Like, yeah, oh, wow, you dope. see what I see? <laughs> dope. But now it's like, yeah, I know. And so it just loses like, it just, what is the point then? Yeah, it feels like we're, at a societal point where so much is being done for other people versus like, do you even like it? Yeah. <laughs> do you even know what you have on? Like, and that, that's how I read it. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, you don't even know. You're not really a stylish mm-hmm. person. You're not really a creative. You're yeah, just the, the pretending are to out be there. one. Yeah. yeah. Because if you were, you would actually appreciate the compliment. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's <laughs> funny. Know? There was, um, and I'm going to mess up the quote, but essentially I was reading something. They were making a point about how when you know where something's going, you likely don't have anxiety about it, but you also don't have the ability to be surprised or inspired by mm-hmm. what might come. Because in your mind, you're like, oh, well, that was what was going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you were describing like the T-shirts in the shop and like, you're not telling people what's in there. They're kind of just coming in and they're like discovering it. Yeah. Yeah. There's that sense of curiosity and it's their ability in the moment to decide, I like this, yeah. not based on an influencer, yeah, a social like, media post, I just yeah. like it. <laughs> like, you know, to go back to that, like, again, today somebody comes into the store, they know what they want. Mm. They want this brand, they want not only this brand, this very specific <laughs> design. <laughs> You know, there's not much discovery anymore, yeah. unfortunately. Um, and we're a store mm. that's built on discovery. Yeah. Or curiosity. So, yeah, yeah. Or cu- exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the foundation of the store was finding new up-and-coming designers and <laughs> giving, you know, so people would come in not with uh, an idea of what they wanted. And, yeah. yeah, a lot of curiosity and a lot of discovery. So <laughs> maybe that's coming back. We'll see. We, we, well, the problem with social media, and maybe this goes right to the heart of the question you asked, problem is not the right word, but the, the residue of yeah. social media is that there is no discovery. Mm. It's all out there. Mm. It's all out there for everyone to see times 100, magnified. Mm. It used to be we would go to a city and we would just walk around and <laughs> discover neighborhoods and cool things and cool people. Now you've got your itinerary and it's, Chat GPT told you how to navigate Amsterdam. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and everyone's at the yeah. same yeah, place. Exactly. Well, yeah, you end up at the yeah. same places. Taking photos. Of the same and, thing. and then it kind of ruins the experience. I actually think it's like, not to be a downer, but I am sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but I Never. actually think that it hurts us. Mm. And I think it's hurting us as a society. And so, you know, on one level, yes, we've lost curiosity. And then we've lost the ability to think for ourselves and problem solve. And so that's hurting us because there's so much coming at us. And it's confusion. People don't know what to believe. And so people just don't listen to anyone because they're like, well, who do I, you know? And or they listen to the loudest person in the room. And that's what's happening and it's really i wouldn't say scary i think everything happens for a reason i believe in cycles Mm -hmm. and everything just goes in the cycle and we're just in that cycle where we have to go all the way 
to the darkest part before we before even we before that. we even want the light. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if we're ready for the light yet. We're like, we're still like kind of figuring that out. Yeah, like we still think it's like really cool and exciting to be in the dark. Yeah. And I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'll say like, I think social media, AI, I think there's a way for these things to be helpful to us. I think what you made a great point of is like, but it can't impact our ability to critically think. It can't impact our ability to problem solve. They should be tools to help us do that, but we shouldn't be overly reliant on our experience and our information purely based on these tools because these tools could be gone tomorrow. Yeah. You know, like what well, happens then? Like what? Well, and they still have <laughs> to navigate. They, these tools need somebody to work yeah. them. Yeah. And so you still need creativity. Yeah. And I think the optimist side of me, <laughs> I think this is going to be a good time for actual creative people mm -hmm. because we will be so tired of the mm -hmm. same. Like when when AI did that song that like, you know, <laughs> and I don't even think The Weeknd and Drake were offended because they were like, this isn't even good. <laughs> so if y'all are just so excited that you copied our voices to yeah. a T, the beats were whack, <laughs> like... And you know, yeah, and Drake's beats human. aren't crazy. Yeah. And so you're like, this is what AI did? Like, <laughs> this is what y'all are like feeling yourself off of? And so, and you, and you realize that the people that even created those apps, mm -hmm. the, most of them weren't necessarily people of color. Mm -hmm. Like they were the ones building, mm -hmm. they were people of color, like, you know, but like the ones that created it were coming from a specific point of view. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that, you can't compare that to what really authentic <laughs> people, you know, can do. No. Really authentic creativity. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no comparison. I'm not scared. I mm -hmm. don't feel threatened. Yeah. But what does scare me is this, also this way of thinking where nobody knows how to think for themselves. So mm -hmm. even creatively, they can't tell what's good or what's not. Like, they don't know. They're like, oh, yeah, it looks cool because it looks familiar. And we're so brainwashed into, you know, and so everything looks the same. And everyone is into just like basic and this whole quiet luxury and everybody wants to look like succession or like a really problematic billionaire or even worse, wants to be a problematic billionaire. And like we need like a million, a billion of those running around. But that's what's happening. And it's, that's scary. That is scary. Is the lack of individuality. creativity, individuality, yeah. and that you're not even craving that. No. You don't even think anything. You're like, we don't need that. And if well. you don't think you need that, well, bruh, hmm. Hmm. I'm scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared. When we return, Beth talks about her upbringing, the Gibbs moving to L.A., and the realization that they would have to start from the bottom in a myriad of ways. Hey, it's Bima, and I'm so excited to share with you today about our initiative, Claim a Seat, our commitment to creating a more equitable society. Now, as many of you know, whether you've been listening to the podcast or following us online or following me on my personal Instagram channel, you know how much we love storytelling and you probably also know that we love product. Now, admittedly, we've been a little bit hesitant about bringing products to the marketplace because honestly, 
We didn't want to just put anything out there. We wanted to put something rooted in purpose that had meaning that could also give back to the community. And so if you haven't already heard, this year we're going to be collaborating with multiple brands to create products and tell stories rooted in purpose as well as representation. So some of those incredible partners include Mir, 47 brand, Saucony, and Clarks. Yeah, that's right. We got sneakers, footwear, hats, accessories, all of that in the works right now. Now, if you want the most timely information because you've been rocking with Claim and you've been sending me DMs saying that, Bima, we need that hat, then you definitely want to stay tuned in to our Instagram handle at Claim Stories. That's where all of the release information will be. Now, keep in mind, I think the additional thing that's important here to remember is that the proceeds from this project will be supporting a nonprofit called All Hands Raise that's actually based in Multnomah County here in Portland, Oregon. So definitely stay tuned and continue to rock with us as we continue to empower black and brown creatives to claim a seat at any table of their choosing. Hey, it's Bima. Welcome back to the Claim of Stories podcast. Now, as we continue, we talk about Beth's upbringing and the vital role it plays in how her and Chris needed to form their own community between themselves and LA. Oh, they're also expecting their first child at this time while basically starting from scratch. Let's get into it. One thing I think that is interesting is how you've been able to build community, right? And I think community is going to be our way to kind of figure out how we navigate some of those things. I do, Beth, I do want to take you back to your childhood because there are some things that, you know, we learned where you would reenact John Hughes movies with, <laughs> with some of your friends. What was that community aspect of building for you? Why is that so important? I mean, I was inspired by these filmmakers, and at the time I had access to John Hughes. I didn't even have access to a lot of the greats that I've come to know um, after going to film school. And But what I've learned from just even being, uh, you know, whether it's a streetwear world or, like, community is everything. Mm -hmm. Like, your friends, yeah. like, people that, like, that know you yeah. um, and you know them. And even family, but the time that we grew up, family wasn't really a thing. It was mm -hmm. really all about your friends. Mm -hmm. Like, my parents had no idea that, like, I had to steal my dad's video cameras, you know? <laughs> and so, um, and, but I knew how to work, all the, you know, technology. And, yeah, I would get, like, my friends and my brother and everybody. And even up until I was older, like, you know, I went to film school and a lot of my friends still participated in my films. Yeah. And they were really bad until <laughs> recently. But, and, and even some of them don't even remember. I'm like, you remember you were in my first student film? And they're like, really? And I was like, yeah, like, you don't remember? <laughs> um, but anyways, I think community is just, is everything. And that is the only thing that's going to save us. Yeah. I do think that we have to believe in community. Mm. And that is the scary part. I think we are so comfortable in this individualistic society and we really don't think we need anyone. Mm. And that worries me mm. because I would be nothing without my community. Mm -hmm. And even though my communities have changed as I've grown yeah, older, evolved, yeah. you know, because I moved around a lot. Like I, you know, I lived in Hawaii and then I lived in California and then New York. But those communities made me who I was, mm. you know, but now I feel like the lack of those communities, people, A, they don't think they need them, and then 
they're just made by they're social media. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're just yeah, like, yeah. yeah, and they're not authentic. Mm. And so that is the thing that we, I think, need to be really conscious of. How do, you, how do you think we do a better job today of maybe trying to authentically cultivate community? Well, I think we need to value each other. I think that we don't think we need people, you know? I think that we are in a really cold place where we, you know, everybody feels hurt by everyone and we're just shutting down and and you know and and even when I say I protect my space I'm protecting my space so I can go back out and then be nice kind to people cuz mm. I'm I don't necessarily know think I'm a nice person but I am kind mm. and so I have to limit who I'm kind to I have to limit <laughs> how how much yeah. kindness I can give out so that's why I have to protect my energy mm. so I think I do think the key of that is that self-love, is that like protecting yourself so then you can go out and then be really kind to someone else who really needs that, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And because um, we need each other. We do. Like we really need each other. Like we need friends, we need relationships. Men need women, women need men, no matter how you like to have sex or whatever. <laughs> It doesn't matter. Yeah. We all need each other. Mm. And so I think as long as we continue to just be kind, mm. if we can, mm. I think that we, you know, but it is hard because there's just a lot of hurt people hurting people. Yeah. And so you want to help someone. But if someone is just out for self, then you're like, and that's how I'm like, I can't pick necessarily the most talented person anymore. I'm like, mm. if you're out for self and you're super talented, then good luck. Yeah, you're like, do your you own know? thing. <laughs> but, you know, and so it's not even about, like, even the most talented per. It's just, it because we all need each other. Yeah. And that's how you figure out what you're good at anyways. Yeah. It comes from your community. We can't do it all. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do everything by yourself. There are some things that you should do alone. Like, I do, no. like, there's, I'm an only child like Chris, so I do need like my time to go through my process. I do need that. Oh, but sure. I do find that to unlock, to get to those better things, to do bigger things, like I have to rely on my community. And to make it fun. Yeah, that's Because like it's not even fun when you're doing it all alone. Like sometimes, you know, my husband gets in his only child mode and he's just like, I'm just going to do this like this. And I'm like, okay, good luck with that. You look like you're having fun, bruh, you in your little corner with your little computer. Good luck. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't, I don't want that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so the community helps keep it fun. Mm. Chris, how do you come up out of that? Because you I go in cool. and then like, how do you like, right? Because it sounds, well, that's I'll a great balance what, too, to have someone that's telling you you're in yeah, there. <laughs> I know. I'll tell you what, it was hard. COVID got me stuck in the hole mm. a little bit. And I'm still... Like, I don't think I'm all, I'm definitely climbed out, but I'm still like in the process of, you know, I really got way too comfortable with myself and with that place that's familiar as an only child. It's a familiar place. Yeah. And so it was hard to dig out. But I guess the answer I have for you right now is routine. Mm. Like I built a routine that forces me mm. out of it. Yeah. And so I really like routine. I, and it can be a problem sometimes. How yeah. does the routine force you like, out of it? Ru like forces me out of, of being in my own little world. 
having yeah. to go to work every day, having yeah. to like, my work is very, like I'm very hands-on. Going to work, like instead of working from home, hmm. like going to my desk, yeah. I could work from home, but it forces me out of my me Just space. Just your own thoughts. And, hmm. you know, going to the job and then, you know, hearing the gossip or getting around the, <laughs> the, the water cooler or, or what, what have you, you know? Yeah. Um, that's the thing. Routine it helps me a lot. You spoke of leveraging that to get you out of your space, out of your head. I know in 2003, y'all moved from New York here to L.A. Um, and I know there's a conversation about <laughs> maybe going back. But, um, Chris, can you elaborate on, you said it was a move that you didn't realize that you needed at the time. Can you unpack that a little bit yeah, more? Yeah, I mean, we were we were living in New York, dating, happy. Like, I still think of, like, our, I guess, I say our, but they overlap. Mm-hmm. But our in the universal sense, if you allow me to be lazy, our, like, kind of 10-year run in New York as, like, the best 10 years of my life. Like, wow. it was just an awesome place to be. I was discovering who I wanted to be and discovering <laughs> the world in a new way and being in this, I was, you know, Started there when I was 18 kind of thing. So it was a great time. And so we decided to kind of level up. Uh, We had some discussions. She was interested in doing film. And so she wanted to move to L.A. to really exercise that. And when she first suggested it, I'll admit it, I was like, I didn't even know how to spell Los Angeles. That's how (laughs) foreign it was to me at the time. And I was like, I don't want to go there. I'm not interested. But, you know. Things evolved. And As they always do. <laughs> and, and this uh, happens every time, by the way. <laughs> every time we need to pivot, it's like, no! <laughs> um, and eventually uh, we came out here. And for me, there's a certain way that cities work. Hmm. I'm not from New York. I didn't grow up there. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Ottawa, Canada. Most yeah. people would make fun of that. Hmm. But it's still a city. It's a, still a metropolitan city that works like New York. New York's just a hundred times bigger, but they work the same way. And so moving to LA, LA doesn't work like that. Hmm. It works differently. I think West Coast cities, generally speaking, don't work the same way as like the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And it took me a really long time to figure it out. Hmm. I was miserable. Like, absolutely miserable. What was it about that was really hard um, for you to get with? I think generally speaking, with? especially coming from New York, we were in New York for a weekend and we saw people that we haven't seen in 20 years, just walking wow. the streets. We couldn't, like we were walking with a friend. We were actually scouting for some locations. Mm-hmm. So we were walking with a friend who's also a realtor. And he was like, he had to build in like time, you know, like I got to build in an extra hour because <laughs> I know you guys are going to bump into people you know. <laughs> You know what I mean? That doesn't happen here. Mm. You know, you have to have an intention to To meet someone someone. here. And so coming from that space where I'm, it kind of got me a little lazy. Mm. You know, in New York, you'd be lazy. Like you're going to just walk out the house, not knowing Mm. what you're doing for the day. (laughs) You're going to bump into somebody. Yo, there's a party here. I'm going to bump into three. I'm going to have options. You you don't have to be an adult in New York. Yeah, you could be a kid. (laughs) Exactly. This is adulting. So out here, you got to be an adult. And so I was used to New York in a way. I was used to that convenience, used to being a kid. We had to, I had to grow up fast. I didn't want to grow up, Mm. you know? And then I got really good advice from uh, two people who gave me really one was overt and one was kind of like slapping me, but Eddie Cruz was like, don't try and make LA New York. Hmm. 
hmm. right? Make LA yours. Hmm. Don't try to make it New York. And it, that's really hard to do coming from New York. Yeah. And so I had that, and then this guy, uh, Berto, uh, who used to manage Union, then went on to manage Supreme. He's in San Francisco now. Shout out to Berto, who like was just one of the best people to help me transition mm. to LA. And he, his thing was like, don't you act better. Don't act don't better. Don't act better. Don't act like New York's better than LA, because it's not. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's different. It's different. Yeah. And so it took a, a while, I think, for me to really embrace that, unfortunately. It took a while for me to find my LA, build my LA. Um, one of the things that I discovered is that Although New York is convenient, and trust me, it's great, I'm not, you know, like, you meet a lot of acquaintances that you know, but they don't necessarily become your friends. They don't have to try. Mm. You don't have to try. Mm. You're all moving in, in this the same kind of pockets. thing. Whereas LA, you had to try to make friends, mm -hmm. and that effort mm -hmm. caused me to make real friends. Mm. You know what I mean? Because mm. you had to make the effort. Yeah. You had to try. You had to so plan to see is this someone. You had to plan to get to together. Like drive in two hours of traffic <laughs> to go see this. Yeah, I guess you really, y'all really you know? friends if yeah. you drive in two yeah. hours. Let me you tell know. you. Or not? Too, I'm being silly, but you know. So appreciating that, and then I think while that was happening on kind of one track on a parallel track, I think LA really evolved in the last 20 years mm. since we've been here. It's become way more of a cosmopolitan city, the, the kind of the city I'm more used to. I mean, when we moved here, the food was <laughs> It's now it's top of the world. Yeah. You know, when we moved here, it was really hard to get around. Mm -hmm. There's trains now. I mean, it's mm -hmm. coming slowly. Uber definitely changed how you navigate. I remember moving here and working at the store and people would come from New York and they'd be like, They'd get to the store and they'd be like sweating and they'd be like exhausted and they'd be like, yo, there's no subway here. Like, it took me a while to figure out how to get here. Yeah. I just had to take a cab. It was $100. You know, like, they were like, yeah. you know, because New Yorkers don't mm -mm. drive. Yeah, no. You know what I mean? Like, so it's evolved. Yeah. I had to kind of embrace a different thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to grow up fast while at the same time as us just moving here. So new place, new jobs. I had to start from scratch. I literally, I'm not even kidding. I was like at the top, I was at the highest position I could be at Union in New York. In New York. I had to start from folding t-shirts all over again out here. Like Ooh. no joke. Um, so that was tough. Beth was starting her whole career at the same time. She was pregnant, yeah. so we had a kid coming. Wow. We got married, so we had, wow. in one year, moved to a new city, both of us doing new jobs, kid on the way, like, and, yeah. you know, we moved from a place where we knew Everybody. our peoples, yeah. we had our, we had, we had to system. rebuild our community. So when, to go back to the question you asked about community, we had to rebuild it yeah. or else we would have starved. Yeah. We would have died of starvation wow. had we not rebuilt our community out here. Mm -hmm. And so it's something we both appreciate and lean into a lot, you yeah. know, because without it, I don't know what would happen to us. I mean, that is so much in a pocket of time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To move, to have to restart, be pregnant, build community, work on your relationship together. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, all of those things are happening all at once. Yeah. yeah. Um, Beth, what's going through you as this experience is happening? Yeah, what do no, you remember? It was a lot of transition. 
I went from, you know, working in the music industry, just having a really good job, to just, you know, knowing everybody, to like mm. starting over in LA, <laughs> which is different too, as like a black woman in LA versus New York. Um, and even though I had went to high school in LA, like I, not in LA, outside of LA, but I, I knew California, it was different and we had to start over. It was super humbling mm. um, and I don't regret any of it. I yeah. think it was, I think it was really good for both of us. Mm -hmm. I think it, it actually made us closer, you know, we had to be our own community first mm -hmm. before. Before you can. Before yeah, you before we could. Involved. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then we had, you know, obviously the other people who, who became like family to us. And, and then we also had to rely on ourselves for a lot of it, which I think was really, really good. It was really hard. Um, now a lot of my friends, you know, I, I was also the first of all my friends to have kids. Wow. So like I have, you know, my son is 19 and I have a 17 year old and I'm, we're about to transition again. And like, I, we're about to be empty nesters. Yeah. And, you know, one of our kids lives in London and another one, we don't know where he's going to go to school. And so that's why New York is kind of the, mm. the thing. Cause I, I feel like we did the adulting here. Mm -hmm. We had to like really grow up yeah. fast. Yeah. We had to figure it out and we hustled. We did it together. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people forget. <laughs> like to give their props to all their boys and, you know, all these other people, except for their, their, their partner that was like really there. Yeah. And so I think that was really good. Yeah. And so I think it's hard, you know, we are OGs, mm. you know, we have been in this for a long time and we've been through cycles. We've yeah. been like at the top and then at the bottom again and at the top. And that's how it works. That's how it works. It ebbs and flows. The ebbs and flows. Mm. And so it makes me not as scared for the next transition, wow. but also knowing it's a transition, mm. like knowing it's something I don't know what's going to actually happen. Mm. And that's, there's excitement to that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it was hard, but it was also really good. And yeah. I think we're going through a similar transition. And that's why I'm like, hey, I think we need to, to open a New York, I mean, a, a union in New York yeah. again, because I think the cycle is ready. And mm. I, I'm a big believer of like, timing is everything. Yeah. Like, we, I'm not God, we're not God. God is this entity mm -hmm. and I believe in God. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like, I, and I'm also very just like instinctual and I just, you know, it's I just feel you. like you just, you just feel it you and feel you it. just know. Yeah. And so I'm going through that mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, and I'm trying to alert <laughs> my peoples, my tribe, <laughs> and I'm getting a similar response that I'm used to but it still doesn't make it any easier. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but yeah, but that's just, it's, that's it's just how it. it is. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, the, the New York story, because um, you two met on the G train, right? <laughs> in New York. Yeah, and, and you were, you were a little bit more into the fashion at first, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I went to Parsons New School. I had like a ton of internships um, that led to jobs. Um, I freelance and assist, was assistant stylist for mm -hmm. a lot of editors at magazines. And, and that was a time where it paid really well. And then, you know, but I was in college, so I worked in music. And then I also, you know, worked at Fat Farm mm -hmm. when Fat Farm yeah. was like, you know. Yeah. And so I've always been into, I think then I would say fashion. Now I'm like into style because I think fashion is a, 
It's a little too, like, organized and, like, too many rules for me. Mm. I'm not a rule follower, and mm. not in an egotistical way. Yeah. I just don't know how to follow rules. I know how to just I follow I mean, rules this. that weren't created for you in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> so it's easier for me to, to break them, and mm. it's easier for me to just, I mean, it's always been like this, but it's hard to get real, real respect, especially as a woman who doesn't really like to follow rules because people like to think, oh, you're ditzy or you don't know what's going on. And people respect like knowledge coming from an institution, a school, you know, some kind of training and somehow that makes you a genius. And I'm like, no, you just know how to follow those rules really well. <laughs> and like, good for you, you know? And yeah. so I'll pick and choose, I'll, I'll take the information, but I'm not like, it's not indoctrinated in me. I'm like, oh, I know how to do it and now I'm gonna do it this this way. Mm. And so there's like a freedom to that. Mm -hmm. um, but now I'm finally at the age where I'm comfortable mm -hmm. and super confident in that, yeah. you know? So it took a minute to get there. It but takes I, some time. Yeah. yeah. But I forget. I, oh, I was talking about style. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and so that's kind of how my style evolved as well. Like, you know, cause I worked, you know, at a magazine mm -hmm. and I stood out because A, I was black during mm -hmm. that time being a black young girl. Like they were like, who's that? You know, and I remember everybody, you know, in fashion at the time just wore all black. It was like super formulaic. Mm -hmm. It was like, these are the rules, darling. <laughs> and, like, and I was like, this, this is black, <laughs> you know? And I stood out because of my, this, for the same reasons I stand out now. Yeah. Like I stood out because I was different. I was just very, yeah, unapologetic. Like people were like, oh, you need to relax your hair. And you need, and I was like, I'm not doing all that. Hmm. And I remember people being like, oh, well, you're probably not gonna last very long in this industry. And I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> you know, I'll go where- I'll go where I can- Where I need to go. Yeah. And yeah. maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> and so I see the girls now that are like fashion Bible and they're like, how do we follow the rules? And, and all the black girls and I'm just like, and I, I don't wanna say it's sad because some people need that. Like some, yeah, people, some people really need some like- guidance. But then I think it makes us just not appreciate that authentic just style. And now there's still such a disconnect between fashion and streetwear, even though fashion has completely taken streetwear. Like they literally yep. would not exist if it wasn't for streetwear. Yep. And they call it fashion. Yep. And this same black and brown people that weren't invited to that table still wanna be at that fashion table. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, why? <laughs> And you're looking at me like I'm crazy, like I don't wanna, I'm giving up an opportunity to be at the table. <laughs> like, no, I don't wanna be at that table. That mm -hmm. table is whack, it's old, it mm -hmm. needs to be shut down, it needs to just crumble. <laughs> because no one is free. None of y'all are free. Yeah. The white people in there aren't free. <laughs> Nobody is free. Yeah. You know, it's just a bunch of rules for what? For somebody to make money. Yes, even the people that make money, though, aren't happy, you yeah. know? And yeah. so, like, I get it, but it's just that whole idea that, like, even money brings happiness. So, either way, but that yeah. doesn't mean I'm, like, I think we should look whack and we should, like, <laughs> not have style and not care about what we look like. Yes, we should. I think there's something to that. It's, like, beauty yeah. is everything to me, you know? Yeah. And, and not in a judgmental way, but it makes you feel good. Like, I dress because it makes me feel good. And yeah. when I see other people dressing, it makes me feel good. I'm, like, oh, my God. They look so cute. I'm so happy now, you know? And that's what I miss about cities like mm. New York or Paris because you see people that are just effortlessly doing that mm -hmm. because 
you know, whereas here you only see that when people are going somewhere. And so it kind of loses that. And so that's why I'm just like, oh, it's time for me to go. Because (laughs) now I'm thinking way too much about like It's something when it's like on your mind all the time. You're like, maybe we need to change the environment. Let's, Let's switch it up. But I really think that, you know, style and the whole psychology around it is just really important for Mm. happiness even. And I think just because, you know, again, it's been dictated by men for women. We like look down on it as this like, you know, but I do think it's really important. It's just whenever money's involved, it just makes everything whack. Like as much as people, yeah, I want to make money too. But once money's involved, it really is not going to be that good. It does change things. It changes everything. It always changes things. (laughs) It does. When we return, we talk about Japan, helping the next generation, and the fact that everyone has a story to tell. Yo, it's Bima. Welcome back to the Claim of Stories podcast. Now, as we conclude our conversation with Chris and Beth, we talk with Chris about the influence of Japan within streetwear, helping the next generation, and the importance of telling your story. So Beth spoke a lot about her experience in fashion in New York and styling. Yeah. And Chris, you came along that journey a little bit later, but you also spoke earlier on about how Japan has been kind of this energetic space where you feel inspired and you discover and you really come alive. Can you take us into your journey into there and like what happens when you're there? I guess I really appreciate the outsider perspective. I guess that's where I would kind of start coming from Canada where I didn't have immediate access to, like, hmm. America, New York, L.A., fashion. Yeah. Especially growing up, that just wasn't something that was I had direct access to. Made me, like, thirsty for it, hunger for it more, and appreciate it more. And so when I did gain access to it, it was a little more special for me. Hmm. And something I kind of, like, I had studied from afar, you know? And yeah. so it's something that... I just appreciated more. And I think Japan kind of has a similar story for the Japanese in mm-hmm. that, like, they're really big into, like, American culture, oh, right? Yeah. They have a kind of, I was going to say Spanglish. I don't know, the Japanese word of version of Spanglish, <laughs> but whatever. They have this term there called amakaji, mm. which is American casual. Okay. Like, they really like American casual apparel. But... When they start building it, there are certain Japanese tropes, Hmm. uh, cultural things that they like to do differently. Hmm. And so there's an attention to detail because of their culture, because of their privilege, Hmm. when they kind of look at like a t-shirt that we don't have. We're Mm -hmm. like, it's a t-shirt, you screen print it on, it could be crooked, who cares? It's (laughs) just like, you know, throw it on, you know, they're like, no, like it has to be a certain way. And they studied the perfect t-shirt from the 50s and they remake it the single stitch on the neckline. And, you know, and so I guess I really appreciate the attention to detail, the quality, you know, it's hailed Mm -hmm. this thing. I grew up like it's a hoodie and who cares I got ketchup stains on it doesn't even matter I just really was in awe of their like uh, nah that's like a work of art Mm. and so especially being a person of color where your fashion is always 
yeah. at the bottom. Compared it's to always mainstream. It's cheap, yep. knockoff, throwaway, affordable thing. Mm -hmm. They took our thing and made it the best thing the best. ever. You go, so when I first went to Japan, nowadays, it's, this is the norm. Yep. Nowadays, someone who's 30 and under, who's listening to this is like, yeah, whatever, that's every, you know, that's all, you just described off white. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, back then, that like, was... I'm used to going to a store and like, all the t-shirts are as close as they can get and you gotta leaf through them and it's on a hanger, you yeah. know what I mean? And so when I went to Japan and I saw like, oh no, like there's that same, you know, t-shirt we're selling at Union and it's crammed in a, you know, how many can we get on one rack? Yeah. No, it's folded by itself yeah. on a marble table. Wow. You know what I mean? Like they're pumping oxygen into the store, <laughs> you know? Would you like some water to get this t-shirt? You know, just that whole experience is, just blew me away. And then they're kind of, to this day, like Japanese fashion, the way they look and the way they attack fashion is it's something very different. It's something very mm -hmm. peculiar, uh, very unique, I should say. And I just, I love their way, which inspired me. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of become my way through that inspiration. Right. It's to kind of take the classics and twist it hmm. just subtly, yeah, just, just a little, little bit. bit. I think Virgil, when he gave his mm -hmm. talk at Harvard, said something about a 5 to 10% change to the classics. And I really like that. And, hmm. you know, I think Japan does that the best. They have these incredible fabrics because mm -hmm. they want this high quality. They'll mm -hmm. go and find the best fleece. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, they'll mix it. There'll be a cashmere, you know, yeah. cotton mix, you know? So <laughs> I just really love the way that they've kind of, as an outsider to American casual mm. apparel mm. and fashion, they've kind of, reinvented it in this really unique way yeah. that just brings the best out of it. Mm. Um, and they appreciate it. They have a culture and a consumer that appreciates it. Because you could do that here and no one would appreciate it. No one it. would appreciate it. it you have to have, hardly you have, to to have the, the whole thing, you yeah. know what I mean? And so my relationship with Japan is because of Japan's relationship to streetwear. Mm. And early on, they were the ones consuming it, not us. Mm. It's only recently that we, America, mm. you know, dare I say even black people, started to really appreciate and consume mm. streetwear. Early mm. on, I'd tell you what a day looked like when I first started working. I'd go in, I'd have my book, maybe the unseen hand or some, <laughs> something on, you know, conspiracy. And I'd open the door, I'd sit in here, and I'd read my book, and I'd read my book for like three hours, and no one would come in. Wow. Then maybe someone would walk in, maybe a tourist from Germany or something, and they'd buy a t-shirt and walk out and open up my book, two more hours, and I'd just, <laughs> you know, I'd straighten up the rack, I'd make sure the store, you know, yeah. read my book, and then, you know, five o'clock comes, and a Japanese kid comes in and he buys half the store out. <laughs> and you know, you know, like, or you know, during the day, the ratio of Japanese, like either tourists or kids that were living in New York, mm -hmm. but you know, students would be like 70% was Japanese. Wow. If you think about like just Supreme and kind of their run, mm -hmm. 
there was a point in time, let's rewind 10 years ago, because things have obviously changed now, yeah, where on. they have one store in New York, New York, and they have 10 stores in Japan, right? There's still more stores in Japan now than mm. anywhere else in the world for Supreme, Yeah. right? 90% of the goods that they were made were being shipped to their 10 doors in Japan, <laughs> and 90% of the goods that they're selling out of the New York store are being bought by Japanese tourists hmm. and students. So... It's evolved, but I'm, I bring that up just to say they really appreciate it. They have a market for this stuff. Mm. Most brands, most even to this day, have a strong following in Japan mm. that without it, they might not survive. Wow. You know, so I, sorry, I went on my little tangent. No, there, it was but, beautiful. Like, like, you, like you were really and so inspired just, by it. And then the fact that all that can live, just their appreciation for other cultures, their culture, the way they kind of move, the way they, uh, I just love it there. I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I love going there, you know. I'm actually making, my wife and I are making our first trip to, okay. to, to Japan. This of, yeah, I'm, get you I, the list. Yeah. Like, I'm, I want to go there. Yeah. Like, I will be asking for that list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to read you both a quote from Howard Thurman, and it says, life under oppression provided no excuses for us avoiding a path of courageous creative integrity. And I think we have to add in capitalism to that oppression, but how do you fight for your creative intentionality when you may be partnering with different brands and things and they may want parts of you, but not all of you and both aspects of you? How do you fight for that? It's a challenge <laughs> because I'm a fighter. And so I always have to be like, how much am I going to <laughs> reveal without being, you know, what was that character on Dave Chappelle? Um, oh, we're keeping it real keeping goes wrong. Keeping it real goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how can I not be that, yeah. right? Because I could easily. <laughs> but... So there definitely is, there's a dance, but I think for me, I think there's just, there's always like an ultimate, like I'm, yes, I think there's kind of sacrifices to everything. So I believe that, you know, well, nothing comes without a sacrifice. Yeah. So even though I know I'm only here because I'm a black woman that speaks out about being a black woman, mm. that's literally the only reason why I have this deal. Mm. I'm fine with that because I actually am going to do something about that. Mm. And I know that, and I'm keeping that in mind. Yeah. And I'm not gonna be like, oh, but like, I need to, you know, obviously I would, the goal is to be an artist, but you know, I know I'm not free yet. Mm. And so I think, you know, a lot of us just have this idea because we feel remotely free and you're like, oh, I'm getting these checks and like, but it's like, you're not free. Mm. This isn't yours. Mm. You don't own this. And like, and you still have to sell it. And I'm, I mean, for me, I'm always put in these positions because I am not a typical black woman. And I'm not saying that, that any of us are, but I've just never <laughs> been. So I think people are always shocked at like, how'd you get this? And how'd you do that? And you know, I'm not an athlete and I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm just me. Yeah, I'm just me. Yeah. I'm not like super hot. I'm not like, I'm not overly sexualized. I don't do that to my, not that I don't want to be 
sexy. Not that anything's wrong with people that don't. That's mm -hmm. just not me, mm -hmm. you know? Um, or people that do, I should say. I realize the challenges, and so it just makes me, I don't want to say grateful, like I'm, you know, this just happy Negro to be there, but I am grateful for the opportunity because the opportunity is rare no matter who you are. Mm -hmm. Like I'm just, yeah, I'm grateful to be there. So I guess, yeah, the answer is that I just know what the end goal is, mm -hmm. and I have an end goal. Mm -hmm. So whatever I have to do now to get there, to get there is to cool. Yeah. You know, and so I'm never going to be performative because I don't know how <laughs> to be performative. Mm -hmm. Like I just, it's just not, you know, I'm always going to be authentic. And so that's why some people, I might do stuff that people won't get. Yeah. They'll be like, you know, that's not me. And I'm like, that wasn't for you. <laughs> and if it was, you would be like, would be that's like, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how I stay in this space is knowing like, well, I'm just always going to be me yeah. and I'm not going to pretend to be anyone I'm not. Right. So if you want to take away the contract. Mm. That's what it is. That's what it is. But I think more of us need to hear that. <laughs> like we need to know like, just be yourself. You don't need to shape shift and do yeah. all these things. Like, yes, be collaborative, but have integrity. And you know, <laughs> I was, this has been coming up a lot, is code switching mm. and how, you know, black people, we think that's our superpower. Mm. And I'm not saying, I don't think I've ever code switched, mm. like consciously. I'm not saying that I don't you know, all of a sudden, I think it's an uncon I think it's unconscious for most of us. I will say that. But I'm never going into spaces to be like, to sell you on someone I'm not, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's why I think I've been in a lot of different spaces because I am like literally authentic. And so, and a lot of, you know, especially black excellence, we look down on that. We think excellence is fitting the part to mm -hmm. the umph degree. Mm -hmm. That's why I hate black excellence. Mm -hmm. I quite frankly hate it. It's mm -hmm. just like, it's very, um, well, it's super performative. I mean, it's just not even real. Like we're the only culture that thinks we need black excellence. Like there's no excellence in any other culture. You're just great or you're not. Mm -hmm. And because we are great. And so I, I get it. We're like trying to convince ourselves that we're great. And it's like, you were great whether you were the best basketball player or not. Or not. You know, like what Michael Jordan did, what Serena Williams has done, like what all of the black excellence have done, they were just great people, mm. right? And so I just think it makes us want to and also teach our kids to fit in this box. And so when we get there, we become really miserable, mm -hmm. like, and we end up losing it, like Tiger Woods or whatever, because you're teaching, you know, these other young black youth that, like, they can't be themselves in order to be excellent. And so I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm no. excellent. Yeah, like, we gotta be able to be you got to be able to make mistakes. We got to be able to speak the way that we want to speak and say how we want to say, dress how we want to dress, wear our hair, how we want to <laughs> wear, wear our hair. Like, otherwise, you get to this place, right? And then you're like, who am I? Yeah, what and most I? of us don't know who we are. So yeah. then we get to those places and then we, that's how we sell out because yeah. we didn't know who we were to begin with. You're like, why am I even doing hmm. this? I thought I was doing it because I'm black, but now I'm, I don't even know. So I'm just going to be out for some, And then we become real greedy and we only do harm to each other mm. because we still think we're better than. And so you're like, oh, and you know what I mean? Yeah. And it just creates these like monsters. Yeah. So I just think yeah. black excellence is like mm -hmm. the devil. We got to be 
us. Yeah. <laughs> like excellent as ourselves. As ourselves, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And we are going to be the best. Mm -hmm. And I mean, quite frankly, people, especially black people who are authentically themselves, are excellent. Like, they're not excellent because they code switched. I don't know people who have been, I mean, except maybe in corporations, but then you're just high on the corporate ladder and you made a lot of money and like nobody knows who you are anyway. They know the corporation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so, one we could go on forever. I hate um, it. But I, I, I want to write a book I, about it. <laughs> another book. <laughs> another book. I like this. We got Cal Maddox got a book. Now oh, you got a book. A book. <laughs> um, no, but I want to do it on like just the history of like coach racism between black people, mm. like just all the stuff we don't talk about. We don't about. talk about. And we just are like, let's get the back. Yeah. On that topic, I would say, or maybe parallel is I think both of you do a great job of looking for black and brown businesses to bring into as you're rising. Like, I, I see that intentionality. And in April of 22, Bethany in particular, you directed this beautiful film, and it was called The Future Is Now. It was a part of that project you did with Nike. Thank you. Why is empowering black businesses so important to you two? And I know it might be an obvious question, but you don't have to. <laughs> so I guess, why do you do it? I think I could speak for both. I don't often try and speak for Beth, but I think I can today on this one answer. You can try. No. Early on in our careers, we were mm. given agency to be our true selves. And I've always strived to retain that, to be that. And then when I got in a place where I could lead, offer that to others. Like, we were really blessed. We came in, in in this industry in a really beautiful time, in an early time, and in a place where we were allowed to be us. And I think when I think of, like, the early part of this industry, it's evolved and it's mm -hmm. morphed, and capitalism has touched it for sure. But early on, by default, it was for the outsiders. <laughs> Right? This was like an industry that was born out of like, again, counterculture, revolting outsider mm -hmm. perspective. Yep. And Rebellion. so that outsider perspective, by just by default, was black, brown, marginalized communities. Like, whoever wasn't getting accepted, you can come here and you mm. can do your thing. And there wasn't an industry about it yet. Mm. And there wasn't a business about it. Mm. It was a community before anything. Yeah. It was just... A bunch of people yeah. who were accepting cool. of each other, who weren't <laughs> getting accepted on the outside, doing their thing, DJing, throwing parties, making screen printed t-shirts, whatever it was, you know what I mean? Just and so we were in early on in our careers, not I wouldn't even have called it a career back then. It was a job. <laughs> just, but yeah. like given access to it. We were part of it. We helped build it. We were given the agency to be our authentic selves in a way that I always want that to exist because that was such a beautiful thing. That is this industry yeah. at the foundation of it. And I don't want to forget that. And yes, now it makes a bazillion dollars for everybody. And I understand that too. And that's important too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Buying power yeah. is important. But I think early on that was just the default of the industry, we were given access at an early age to that. 
And so I want to continue that and continue to offer that and continue to be that. Like mm -hmm. inevitably, like, you know, I'm black. I care about <laughs> black issues, you know, and I've told like, you know, for example, around the George Floyd issues and we had, we dug even deeper into that as the world did. And now we took advantage of that, not advantage in a bad way, but we really leaned into that more. Yeah. But at one point I pulled my staff and I was like, look, because my staff's not all black. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of black, but it's not all black. Hey, this is what's important to me. Mm. And so this is what I'm doing. But I care about what's important to you too. Mm. You, have, you care about animals' rights? Let's do something. Like pitch me on it. It doesn't need to be all me all the time. Again, trying to share with them like, what's important to you? Let's do it. You know what I mean? Let's get involved with it. Let's get behind it. Yeah. You know? Sorry, I, I know you wanted to say no, something. No, no. No, don't apologize. No, I feel I'm like... I'm Canadian. I can't help. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I did agree. Did I answer I for you it, okay? <laughs> yes, you did. And it just brought me to this answer, which is, I think community is the blackest thing you could be. Mm. And... I think I realized that I didn't grow up in a black community. Like mm -hmm. I lived in Hawaii, my dad was in the military, and he's from Harlem, mm -hmm. and he moved us out of it and thought he was bettering us, mm -hmm. right? And so um, our communities were everything, yeah. you know? If you were a single mom, if you were, you would open up a beauty shop, and we helped each other. And we normally did it by businesses. And I don't think it's just a black thing. I think communities are everywhere, especially in like, they would call them underdeveloped countries. Mm. But most of us are, we're not workers. Mm. We're community-based. Mm. We're like, you're good at this, we're gonna support this. You're yeah. good at that. Like the doctor and the lawyer and everybody needs that in their community, mm -hmm. right? And so we, unfortunately, as black people, haven't really been able to develop those in our community. Like we don't have the, the doctor anymore, or even the lawyer. And so it's, it has been around like retail, selling, yeah. you know, clothes, other people's things. Mm -hmm. And so that is what separates us from everything. And that's what's mm -hmm. helped us survive. And I think we've totally. forgotten that yeah. because now we all want to be billionaires we all want to be elon musk or whatever as problematic as that is we wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for our community yeah like period and so that's why i only want to work and help build other communities like that's the legacy obviously my family is a part of it but like that's everything like there's no just me just helping myself like what is that yeah like, that's not happiness. Mm. That's not anything. You know, my, I realized, like, I mean, I did grow up super religious, as most black people did. Grew up in the church. <laughs> both grew up in the church. grandparents <laughs> on both sides were, like, ministers or whatever. And my grandfather just died, passed away, mm. and he was from Harlem, like, that. generations. And so many people came out for the funeral, and, and it just reminded me, and it was just all these younger generations that talked about how my grandfather had helped them. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of it was involved in the church, but it was still, it was very community-based. And I'm like, yeah, churches have been, and my parents met, you know, they, from their parents. It wasn't arranged marriage, but it was like close to it. Mm -hmm. And it was from <laughs> their community. <laughs> it was from their community. Yeah. And so, yes, again, I'm just saying, 
Community is everything. Community is everything. It really is. Like, we're nothing without our communities. Mm. Communities raise us. I mean, that's very, very true. Um, and that's why everything is going down the way it is. Our kids are suffering because they don't have a community. Yeah. You have two kids. Like, yeah. how do y'all raise them within all of this? I mean, we community was important to us. So yeah. they grew up around community. Yeah. We always found community. And even though they're growing older, what I'm trying to do different, because I don't think a lot of black families are good at really helping, like, the younger generation. Like, they're not really supportive. They're yeah. like, okay, we did We made our money. You're on your own. You're good. <laughs> you know? And I'm, like, really, like, you know, not to say Chris is like this, but I'm like, we need to. And I'm not trying Chris to create like, crutches <laughs> for them. But I'm like, this we're building for our kids. Yeah. Our kids' kids, for their friends. I'm just like, I want to bring in people that I know and love. Mm -hmm. we, we've just been around it, and they've benefited from it mm -hmm. as well. Like, they're still friends with kids that they went to preschool with, <laughs> you know, because they were our community. They weren't just a preschool. Yeah. You know, that's and we were so also really fortunate to be in L.A. and have that. I don't know if that still exists here. Hmm. I think it's like everything feels just super corporate and mm. especially if you have kids. It's yeah. like the preschool my kids went to, <laughs> I don't think, I don't know if it exists anymore. And I think that's sad. And so mm. that's why I'm like, dude, we got to make this money. We got to build things that create this other type of community. And I think, you know, that's where just like the telling stories yeah. on this bigger level comes in. Comes into play. Yeah. Chris, were you going to add something? Sorry. No, was for, for, with our kids, like, you know, we've, it's always been really important. Solomon today is starting an internship with his best That's friend from school. Friend. <laughs> yeah, sorry. With his best friends from school's dad's yeah. studio, you know. Our younger son is in Florida right now training with his uncle. Wow. He's a footballer, so. Yeah. 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 You know. But. Yeah, community is everything. I'm serious. If y'all don't get a community, <laughs> I feel sad for you. Because like, I've said happening. it before on other yeah. talks, and people are like, community. Like, girl, you old school. I'm like, call me old school, but I'm good. I'm worried about you, though. Yeah. Because, like, seriously, like, if we're just this whole out for self hmm. is, like, it's dangerous. It's yeah. like... You're it's cutting been, off your lifeline. It's been documented where it ends. Like, you mm. know how it but ends. But yeah, we're I, still doing it. Yeah. We're still, like... I recently gave a talk to some <laughs> elementary kids, mm. and one of them asked, how do they get into the store? You know, whatever. Mm. And although that was an elementary question, I get asked that a lot by adults, too. Mm. Like, how do you, you know, how do you start a brand? How do you get into the store? You know, and although it sounds like we're just going on and on about community, like, yo... When I look at the brands that we have and that they've been successful, it started with a group of people Kids. that believed in each other mm. and started making a product, a commodity for each other mm. and grew organic, all of it. And so when I get sent lookbooks, you know, at, I already said in the beginning of this interview, the product isn't as relevant anymore. Mm. You know, mm. it's about the narrative and it's about the story. Mm. And community is tied really closely to that. Yeah, to that. And so when I get sent these lookbooks and it's like, it looks white background, whatever. <laughs> I'm like, it could be the dopest shirt on the planet. <laughs> like, you're not what? telling your story. Mm. I, and so it misses me. Yeah. I could miss dope ass brands because you gave me this static shot. You know, you're trying to sell to me. Yeah. And I need to 
you know, fill it. find a better model than this, you know. <laughs> I know you got a friend who's a model, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a photographer. And I tell people all the time, they'll be like, how do I get, they'll send me their line sheet and it's just photos of the product. And I'm like, yeah. tell me about it. I need yeah. to know more. And I, and I know you came from somewhere. We all did. Mm. I came from Ottawa. Nobody even ever heard of it. You know what I mean? But I had my community there. Yeah. Yeah. We st I just did t-shirts for Canada Day in <laughs> Ottawa. My, a guy I went to high school with. You know what yeah. I mean? We donated, uh, I think, 300 Jordans to another friend of mine who does a program. He's a First Nations in Canada. Wow. Like, we're st I'm still in touch with them. We're yeah. still supporting yeah. each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? You have all of us, like came from somewhere. We came oh, from a community mm -hmm. and that's the community that can help you the most. That's the mm. value. Right? Wow. We, and we all have a story. And, and one of the things I learned early on in this industry, because I'll admit, I'm saying it now like I'm Svengali and oh yeah, we all have a story. I didn't know that at 18. I yeah. thought I was from nowhere. I thought it was some mixed mm. kid from Canada nobody cared about. Mm. You know what I mean? And what I learned through this process, this 25 year process, is that like, no, I have a story mm. and people do care mm -hmm. and they relate and there's something in my past yes. and there's some way that I grew up in some community that I was a part of that r relates some way yeah. in a familiar way to somebody else. And the designs that I try to do mm. or that whatever emotion I try to enlist in what I'm making, they're gonna you know, they're, gonna, they're there. Yeah, it's they're there. Gonna it. They're going to resonate with And it. so just tell your story. Wow. You know? Wow. Um, it's not about the product. It's really about your story. And that's 100%. where, as black people, as marginalized communities, that's why this your industry has served us so well. That's we got the story. <laughs> we might not have the money. We might not have the access to the wheels of industry, the gears mm -hmm. of industry. We have the stories. Mm -hmm. And that's why this industry has been more prolific in supporting mm -hmm. black communities in particular mm -hmm. and other marginalized communities because it's the story, and how do you mm -hmm. tell the story? Yeah. Music industry is a parallel to that. You know, music industry first. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, we got the stories. We got, we you got, know? we literally have the stories, and we're the best storytellers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even though. You, you had asked a question earlier about how do we navigate these corporate yeah. collaborations. Yeah. It starts with, we're bringing our story. You know, yeah. that's not to say it isn't hard. That's yeah. not to say that there aren't challenges. Mm -hmm. There are explicit challenges, mm -hmm. but at the foundation of almost every collaboration we do, it starts with our story. And the story doesn't have to be tragic. I just want to say that. Yeah, because I do think, in like no, these, I'm not saying that, but when these. we reference like the music industry, which I worked in the music it, industry yeah. too, yeah. and it just becomes the same, like, oh, I'm from the hood, I mm -hmm. sold mad drugs, yeah. I've been shot X amount of times. I'm, I'm from it's the happy like, raps generation, you know. I'm yeah, all about but, happy raps. But the happy thing raps. is, is your story could, I never fit into any, I worked in the music industry and they yeah. were like, Nobody got who I was like a big question mark. Yeah. <laughs> but I found my community through that. Like yeah. I, you know, I became friends with, you know, for like people who were also weird and different yeah, and different. didn't fit into a box. Yeah. And we kind the of outsiders. came together and yeah. we saw each other. Yeah. And so it's just like whoever you are, you will find your tribe. But if you are camouflaged as someone you're not, then you will be forever in a tribe that you you're like, what the f am I doing here?
and you won't be happy and you won't have a story to tell in any career path that you have and you will only be a worker. And you've, wow. you've got to stick together. <laughs> it it reminds me a of a parallel in Japan. This might be off color a little bit. I'm, I'm sorry, but whatever. I think it's widely understood that the Yakuza has a you know, gangster mm-hmm. mob syndicate and Japanese mob syndicate has a pretty strong foothold in certain industries in Japan. And one of the things I learned is that that was formed by outsiders first. Mm. They weren't allowed. Um, I think Yakuza was heavily Korean early on, mm. and there's still a heavy contingency of Koreans mm-hmm. because Koreans were outsiders in Japan. Mm. They weren't accepted, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, somebody told me a story that basically there's a leather shoes that get imported to Japan have a really high tax, okay. right? The foundation of that is basically early on, the caste system in Japan, handling dead skin was the lowest caste. <laughs> and so the syndicates went and got all the undesirables, the lowest caste, and formed together and became their own community. Wow. And started imposing their will. Hmm. I mean, this happens to be through, you know, organized crime, but there's hmm. some there's another part to that, which is like, and over time created these uh, places where there were strict laws to import leather because it was competing against this caste. Right. You know what I mean? Not laws, but strict duties and taxes. And so, you know, we can band together, all us outsiders, form our own community, stick together and be stronger together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this was beautiful. Like, <laughs> I usually ask a question about advice at the end, but I feel like this whole time, <laughs> y'all have been giving so many good gems. It no, made the point, the, the question elders. pointless. <laughs> are, we the, are we the elders of We're this podcast? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> I feel like an elder, and I'm proud of it. Like, yeah. I'm not even mad. Yeah. I'm not. This is so, like, this is so dope. Thank y'all so thank much for, you. like, sitting and sharing and taking the time. Like, this was a beautiful interview. Yeah, truly. thank you for having us. Of course. That was Chris and Beth Burkett Gibbs, the first family of streetwear. Find out more about Chris and Beth and get access to all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like today's episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please don't forget to rate and review us. We want more black and brown creatives to hear these stories, and that comes from your support. You can stay up to date with all things Clayma by following us on Instagram at Clayma Stories. Or you can reach out via email at hello at ClaymaStories.com. Our show this week is produced by Perfect Patel, Amiri Rose, Natalie Yazzie, Jericho Trim, PRPL Productions, and DB Podcasts. Original music provided by Adrian Anaya and vocals by Rosella. Special thanks to BJ Fergozo, Jordan Dinwiddie, Saina Clark, Clint Blaine, and Damian Mitchell. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to the Claim of Stories podcast. <laughs> <laughs>